still no. Maybe? No. So you might have to do this for me. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure this out, but it's not working. Can you go back two slides? We're going through a series called Dysfunctional Families, Faithful God. And we're, we're, we're choosing to go through the series. We, we entitled this uh, sermon series Dysfunctional Families is because as a family of God, we're all broken somehow, right? You have some type of brokenness in you, and it impacts the relationships you have with other people. And the funny thing about families, even Christian families, is we don't always get along. And there are times when uh, we might argue, we might fight with a, with a sibling or with a parent, a child. Uh, their actions might have a negative impact on us. And there's times that we don't even realize the impact it has on us until much later. It could be through our actions, our words, our attitudes. And those actions sometimes sever relationships, sometimes it breaks trust, sometimes it hurts others. And the Bible tells us that every single one of us were dysfunctional. Right? Every single one of us were broken in some way. And the Bible tells us this dysfunction is sin. And, and sin, what sin does, and what sin means is we love ourselves more than we love God. We love ourselves more than we love uh, one another. We do things that, that pleases ourselves most, and it, sin tears us apart from one another. Some of us are thinking, but, you know, that's for those who are not Christian, but for those of us who are Christian, it should be different. And that is true, but just because we follow Jesus Christ doesn't mean our relationships automatically get better. In fact, following Jesus, in fact, sometimes will make it worse. Jesus tells us, if you want to follow me, the world will hate you because they hate me. And so what this means is despite our brokenness, despite our broken relationships, um, I mean, we still have these things, but we have Christ that binds us up. We have a father that is faithful. And this truth is probably best illustrated in a story that Jesus tells to the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders of his day were asking themselves, why is Jesus hanging out with all these broken people? Why does Jesus seem to like the sinners and the outcasts, everybody that we don't seem to like very much? Why is he spending all this time and energy with the dysfunctional? And Jesus tells this story that maybe many of us are familiar with. If you have your Bible, you could turn with me to, uh, it should be Luke chapter 15, verse 11. It's one of the most loved story in the New Testament. And sometimes when you hear a story so much, it loses its punch, doesn't it? It's kind of like the Velveteen Rabbit, a story that is so loved, it kind of becomes limp. Right? And so what I want to ask you to do as we listen to the story again, I want us to listen as if you were a first century Jewish person hearing the story for the very first time, I'll try to illuminate some of the things that we may miss as modern listeners. Luke chapter 15, if we could go to the next slide. Nope. I'm sorry. Oh. One more. And he said, thank you, Gareth. Is this working? Oh, perfect. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And 
he divided his property between them. See, when the younger son comes to the father, he's not asking for an allowance, right? He's not asking for some spending money. He, he's not saying, hey, you know, I want to buy this thing. Can, can, I, can I have an advance on my, my payment? He is asking his father, he's telling his father, hey, listen, dad, I know you're going to die one day. And when you die, you know, you're going to split up the property between brother and I, and I just want my stuff now. Like, I, I, I would rather you be dead and I have my stuff than for you to be alive. And for those of you who are reading closely, you notice the way Jesus tells this story, right? He uses a lot of words. He says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Jesus could have used one word, or Luke could have recorded one word. The common word for this, this idea that the son is asking for is the, the idea of inheritance. He could have used this word, kleronomia, which involves not just receiving the inheritance, right? and this is the typical word for inheritance, but also assuming the mantle of responsibility that a son should have. They would have to reason. Uh, resolve family disputes. They would have to defend the honor. They would represent the family at village functions. Jesus could have very easily said for the youngest son to say to the father, Father, give me my kleronomia. Give me my inheritance, and I will also take on the role of a son. Rather, the word that Jesus uses here is the only time it's used in the New Testament. He uses this word usia, which simply means stuff. The wealth, the property, the physical stuff. Uh, and the younger son makes it very clear that when he talks to his father, not only would he rather his father dies, but he wants nothing to do with the family. He doesn't want to assume the responsibility that a son should take. He doesn't want any of the obligations that a son should have. He says, it's all about me, and I want it now. For some of us, Imagine going to your father and saying, Dad, when you die, I want your stuff. I'm not going to take care of mom. I'm not going to take care of my brothers. I'm not going to do it. I just want your stuff. Imagine the shame and dishonor the father would have felt and experienced. Because it's not something that's done in private. The entire village would have known what had occurred. And perhaps some of us, we've experienced these kinds of relationships, whether it comes from a child or a parent or a friend. You realize that after all that you poured into this relationship, all they want from you is what you can give to them. Sometimes we call these people users, or we call them takers. We might use the label selfish or, or self-centered, right? Maybe some of us, we've been called these things also. That was the younger son. He was rebellious. He was self-centered. He broke his father's heart, and he didn't really care much about it. He was ungrateful, privileged. Well, what were the father's options here? What could the father have done? In the ancient world, a son that shames the family, he could have been driven out of the family. In Deuteronomy, in fact, it says if a son that is rebellious, the whole village could stone. They could just take big rocks and throw it at the son. In, in fact, there is a ceremony. It's kind of interesting. It's called kazaza, which signifies this person is cut off from the village. They would take a pot of clay and they would smash it at this rebellious child's feet and it would shatter at their feet signifying you are now broken from us you have no part in this village you have no recourse to come back 
If we see you again, we will throw bigger things at you. Right? And so this was very common in that day. And the listeners listening to Jesus' story, hearing this rebellious, ungrateful son ask his father to die and to take his stuff, would assume the next line in Jesus' story would say, and they drove the son away, and they killed the son, and they stoned the son, and they performed kazaza. But that's not how Jesus continues with the story. Because in the story, the father does what the son asks. And the way Jesus tells it, he doesn't simply divide up his property. He says he divides up his life. This word for property, right? He could have used lots of different words, but he used this word uh, bion, which we get the English word bios or biology, right? The study of life. He gives to the son his subsistence, his entire livelihood. He, he gives to his son everything that, that he has to keep him alive. And the son is literally taking the life from the father, taking his heart. I wonder how many of us, or how we would respond if someone treated us this way. Perhaps for some of us, we have siblings. They take stuff without asking. And they keep on taking. And they don't seem to care about uh, taking good care of it. Perhaps we have friends who, who just uses us for what we have, and they don't realize the cost it is for us. Perhaps it's someone's words that cuts us like a sword and tearing us down, and they don't realize the impact it has. Maybe for some of us, we experience the rejection of love, like this father, the rejection of acceptance, the rejection of community. How would you respond? Well, not many days later, the younger son gathers all he had, and he takes a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. I find it interesting that this story that Jesus tells 2,000 years ago still lives in our culture today. Right? The spirit of this younger son is still alive. This younger son, he looks at the country and says, there's nothing here for me. I want to go far away. I want to do what I want to do. I, wanna, I want to live my best life. I want to find personal fulfillment. I want to I be free. I want to, you know, like we have this phrase, you do you, right? And, and you write your own truth. You write your own narrative. You live your own lives. Societal pressure, familial obligations be damned. You do you, boo. And we still live in a culture where the attitude of the younger son is well and alive. And the younger son, and like the younger son, we throw off the values that we were given. There's no right or wrong. There's no ultimate authority. Who are you to tell me that my lifestyle is wrong? But as listeners to Jesus' story, we have an insight. We see the destruction that is left in the wake of this younger son. We see the brokenhearted father. We see the shame that he bears and the embarrassment that he bears. Well, the younger son, he goes out, he spends all his property until it's all gone, a family, famine comes to the land. And the next part of the story, he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the, his field to feed pigs. And he is longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one 
gave him anything. The picture that Luke gives us here is, is that he's, he's suffering shame upon shame, right? Working for a Gentile was shameful enough, but the word that he uses, it's he hired himself. The word that he uses could be translated as hired. It's a kind of a stretch, though. It really means he glued himself to a citizen of the country. It's actually a glorified form of begging. If you go in the Middle East, I'm actually deeply embedded to the the theologian Kenneth Bailey. He tells us if you go to the Middle East and you come out of your car, there will be people immediately polishing your windows. And as you're stepping out of the car, they'll open the door for you, they'll hold your bag, they'll, they'll walk with you wherever you want to go, and you could try to tell them to go away, but they're like, no, 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 let me help you, let me grab all your stuff for you, all the way to your hotel. And when they get to the hotel, they hand you all the stuff, and they expect to be paid, right? They glue themselves onto you, expecting payment, and this is what's going on. This younger son glued himself on to a Gentile, and now the polite thing for a Middle Eastern person, a polite way for a Middle Eastern person to get rid of these unwanted hanger-ons is to give them a task that is so undesirable, right? So detestable because, in a sense, there is shame if you just uh, make a beggar go away. So what they would do is they would say, let me give you the worst job possible. And this beggar would say, well, I don't really want to do that. Uh, forget it. I'll find another sucker. And so the worst job possible in his day is, I want you to go feed the pigs, right? It's like saying, I want you to go clean the public bathrooms. Like, eh. And the boy does it. Now, you can imagine, as a first century listener, you hear the story, you're like, this kid's insane, right? This is ridiculous. And they're laughing at the, the shame of this younger son, but I think Jesus is telling us the truth because sometimes, and it's truthful, it's easier to live in shame than it is to come home, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier to do the shame that you know than return to the glares of the family, to the condemning looks that the church might give, to the whispers that we inevitably hear that goes behind our backs. And like the younger brother, some of us might feel that way. It's it's easier to stay away than to come home. Jesus continues on in the story, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. At some point, the son realizes what I am doing is insane. The guys who are working for Pops, you know, they're making more money. and They're eating better food. I, I come to my senses is what Luke says. And what uh, Jesus is implying is he, he realizes there's a better way to live. Now, in order, uh, at some, in order to go back, though, the son realizes that he has to return all the money that he took, right? In order to go back and avoid the kazaza, he has to pay his father back. And so he comes up with this plan. And the plan is, he's going to tell his dad, I've sinned, I've done wrong, please hire me as your servant, and I will slowly repay this debt I have. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
Now, for the modern readers, we might be thinking, hey, that's great. He's repenting. Right? He's saying, sorry, he's, 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 he's showing that he, he did something wrong. But what Jesus does here, and oftentimes we will miss this. In fact, for most of my life, I didn't realize this. What Jesus does here is he is very skillfully showing that the son is not truly repentant because in the Hebrew and especially in the Aramaic, this is exactly the same words that Pharaoh says. After eight plagues has come, Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron and says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. He mimics these words, right? And so for a Jewish listener listening, they would know immediately, hey, this guy's not sorry. He's a liar. He's not really repentant. He's just trying to manipulate his father the way Pharaoh manipulates Moses. He's a trickster. He's just like Pharaoh. He's just trying to get a better job and back away back into respectability don't believe him father don't be tricked again don't be duped again you know if someone came back to you someone who had hurt you come back with a half-hearted apology we, we hear that a lot today don't we we see that with celebrities or we see that with politicians and they do something wrong and they come and they apologize, but there's, there's no heart, there's no truth in their apology. They say, I'm sorry that you were so easily offended. I'm sorry that you didn't understand my humor because everyone else does. I'm sorry that you were hurt by my actions, but I think I was still right. I'm sorry I hurt you but I was stressed, and I was hungry, and I was tired. You know, there are times we hear these false apologies. I don't know about you, but when I hear this, it just irritates me even more. It makes me want to shun this person even more. It makes me want to resist him even more. But notice what the dad does. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him. He felt compassion. He ran, and he embraced and he kissed him. And right here in this short, these two short verses is perhaps the most beautiful picture of rescue, of reconciliation, of restoration in the whole story. While he was still a far ways off, the father sees and he runs. In the Middle Eastern culture, men do not run. Children ran. Moms would run. But a man that it was respectable, would not run. Because in order for a man to run, he would have to lift up his robes and his legs would be exposed and the entire village would laugh and say, look at this man's legs. It's kind of funny uh, what we think is um, modest or not. But he would have to raise up his robes and he would run. But here, here's more to the running. It wasn't just because he was excited. He knew if he saw his son, that means other people saw his son as well. And if other people saw the son returning, other people would be ready with stones and with pots, ready to throw them at his son. The only way that he could prevent this is if he beat out all the villagers to this son. And not only did he run to him, he's literally running to save him, he felt compassion. And the word here is such a beautiful word. It actually means he felt this pain in his intestines. For the Hebrew thinker, the intestines was the seat of all affection, deep in his gut, right? And we, we have phrases like this in English, don't we? They're like, it, man, it hit me to the core of my being. 
in my, in my gut, I felt pain. I was moved. The, the father, deep in his gut, deep in his abdomen, he felt compassion. There's no bitterness. That wasn't his first feeling. No anger, no demand for explanation, simply compassion. And then he proceeds to the son, and he kisses him again and again and again, just, just all over. So overcome by the love of the father, the son changes his plan, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, some commentators will say the father cuts him off before he could continue with his, with his uh, plan, uh, but other, other commentator says uh, that actually God's overwhelming love or the Father's overwhelming love stops him and causes him to realize uh, that, that there's no amount of words or actions that could repay what the Father has just shown him. Right? The Son is so overwhelmed by the love of the Father, by the, the costliness of the Father's actions, that he stops himself. And in fact, if he were to continue on, he'd realize just how blasphemous it would be. Paul tells us it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. When we understand the love of God, when we understand the mercy of God, when we understand the kindness of God, the grace of God, it stops us from thinking we can do anything to earn God's love. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's overwhelming love for us stops us dead in our tracks and causes us to realize there's nothing we can do to repay, repay the hurt that we've caused. Son realizes here the sin that he committed was not taking the money, nor was it losing the money, but rather breaking his father's heart. No amount of money would repair that broken heart. To even suggest a repayment would be blasphemous. And so... He continues on, but the father says to the servants, quickly uh, bring the best robes and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. And in this short sentence, we see a picture of restoration through grace alone. Right, we see a couple things that, that signifies the restoration. Bring the best robe. The robe signifies this is someone that the, the father honors. You remember in the story of Esther, the king asked Haman, what, what should the king do uh, to honor a man that, that he wants? And, and Haman says, well, put your best robe on him. Right, so putting the robe signifies, I honor this son. I, I love this son. This is my son. And to put a ring on him would be the signet ring, which gives him the authority to sign contracts, to make deals, saying this son is not just back. This son has the full authority that he had before he left. And let's put shoes on him because only slaves went around barefoot. Sons wore shoes and bring the fattened calf. Right, this is free range, grass fed, prime rib. This is how you love your son, right? It's just all you dads. Just remember, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Friends, if you're here today and you feel that you've been far away from God, you're far away from God's people, far away from your spiritual family, know that God is looking for you, waiting to run to you, to embrace you, to kiss you to welcome you home, to restore you. There's no condemnation, right? There's no explanation needed. 
simply, won't you come home? Won't you come to your senses too? But the story actually goes on. And the story is not just about one son. There's an older son in this story. We have to remember that Jesus is actually telling the story to a bunch of religious leaders. Now the older son in the field uh, was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music, and he heard dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. When the older son who was out in the field, he's like, hey, I didn't get the memo. Is it dad's birthday? Is he retiring? Am, you know, is it my birthday? Maybe I forgot. And when he finds out, he's just absolutely livid. Why would dad waste all this money on a prodigal? Why would dad restore the son that has lost all of his inheritance? For some of us, we might relate more with the older son. Maybe you're like me. You grew up in church. You know the Ten Commandments, you know the Great Commandment, you know the Great Commission, you've done all of that. You come and you serve and you regularly attend, maybe even go overseas and you're a missionary. You go to teach Sunday school. And someone comes and you, they come to our church and you look at them and you say, why is that sinful person here? Why, why, how dare, how dare they come into this building? Right? They're the ones that party on weekends and they pretend like nothing's happened on Sunday. They're, they're the ones that sleep around. They're the ones that don't have their life together. What are they doing here? How dare they shame God's house like this? Maybe if, if they got their life together. Maybe if they sobered up. Maybe if they stopped screwing around. Maybe then we'll let you in. For some of us, we're indignant just like the older brother. The father, he hears this and he comes out and he entreats him. And for the second time in the same day, the father has to bear the shame of going out and asking the son to enter because a, a, a host would never leave a party. That was just unheard of. For a host to leave his guests, his honored guests would say, hey, you guys are not that important. Let me go take care of some matter and I'll return to you. You guys are less important than this. And so for a father to leave his guests, the second time he has to endure the shame in front of other people. And this is how the older brother responds. He says, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And here is his chance to really let his dad know what he was thinking. To really let his dad just have it. I've done everything you've ever told me, dad. Never once have I broken a rule. Never once have I spent more money than I should. Never once have I stayed out later than I told you I would. Every day I went to work for you. What do I get? You've never given me a party. You've never celebrated, and, and the son of yours, he's not even my brother, the son of yours. Let me remind you, he spent all your money. It's not like he was out trying to do something good with it. He spent all your money on prostitutes. 
And in these words, we realize a truth from this older brother. You could keep the law, but you could break the relationship. Although the older son was present physically, his heart was far away. And in this example, we learn that even though we do all the right things, maybe we come to church or we go to small groups or fellowship, we serve, our hearts could be just as far away from God as a younger son. Both the reckless and the responsible, they suffer the consequence of brokenness, of dysfunction. They both fail to love the father and their hearts are both far away from God. And the father's love in a similar way to the younger son reaches out to this older brother and says, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. And the story ends. There's no conclusion to the story. And if you're reading it, it's a little bit unsatisfying. And, you know, you, as, a, as a listener, you're like, what does the son do? Right? What does the father, like, does the father take him back? And does the son, like, are, are, what happens? It's so unsatisfying. But there's a reason why Jesus ends it this way. Because you and I are the story. How are you going to respond? How you respond to the story doesn't say uh, how good or how bad you are. It says how much you've experienced God's love. How do you respond to the story? For the younger brother, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, there is no distance that can keep you away from God's love. He is waiting and he's looking for you to come home, to overwhelm you with his love, to cover you with his kisses, to welcome and receive you back. Because there's an older son in this story, a son that comes and seeks to save the lost. His name is Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're welcomed back to the family. To the older brother, the father here is saying, you've always been my child. My responsible, my proper son, my proper daughter, I've always loved you, not because of what you did, not because of how well you performed, but because of who you are to me through my son, Jesus Christ. Not because of how much you serve or how well you behave or how together your life is. I love you just as much as I love the other brother, the other daughter. Won't you step away from trying to earn my love? Won't you just realize that I love you because I'm your father through your older brother, Jesus Christ, as well? Now, to each one of us, how you treat the younger brother, how you treat the older brother, says more about our experience of the love of the father than it does about their prodigality or our self-righteousness. Do you celebrate when you see a child of God come home? Are you excited and you say, I am so happy that this broken person, this outcast, this dysfunctional, this sinner is back in the family so excited to get to know her, get to know him, because we share the same father, and we have the same savior. You see, the dysfunction we experience in our hearts, in our families, in our church is only overcome when we experience the love, the grace, the compassion that the father extends. 
And it's not just a one-time deal. It's something that we have to continue to remind ourselves again and again. The Father loves us, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. How will you respond? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a Heavenly Father that is full of compassion for us. That you are waiting to run out to us, to rescue us from our own lost.